0: Hello, Vass here with this week's How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. In this week's episode, Matthew Stadlin meets Silicon Valley venture capitalist Roger McNamee. Roger was an early investor in Facebook and a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg, but in the last couple of years, he's spoken up about the existential threat he believes Facebook poses to public health. And the political order. He joined us live in London to tell us more.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the How To Academy. You can take a seat, Roger. You don't have to stand up as I praise you. My name is Matt Staddon, and I'm a presenter on the radio on LBC, early morning, Saturday, and Sunday. For my sins, it's very good to see so many of you here today. I think it's a Monday, my, my days get scrambled due to my hours. It's a particular pleasure for me to introduce to you a man who increasingly requires no introduction at all, although I have just learned how to pronounce his name, because I always thought it was Roger McNamee, but it's Roger McNamee, Irish. He was born and brought up in Albany in New York State. He was the second youngest of a family of nine. His parents adopted his cousins as well. And he had a pretty cool childhood, by the sounds of things, from reading this book, and went on quite a young age to set up life in San Francisco after losing his father to cancer far too young he started to make a career for himself in tech and became a really big tech investor in all the truest senses of the words and quite early on in the genesis of Facebook he became as you may know by now a mentor to Mark Zuckerberg or Zuck as you describe him in the book and in their very first meeting He managed to persuade Mark Zuckerberg, so the story goes, not to sell Facebook for a billion dollars. And Roger would go on himself with his company to invest around about 1%, a 1% stake in the company. But in 2016, ahead of the American election, Roger changed his view very fundamentally about the company that he had helped become this giant. And over the course of the next... Hour, hour and a quarter, and you'll get a chance to ask your questions later on. Roger is going to explain to us why it is that we should all be quite scared if we have a Facebook account. Who does have a Facebook account? Everyone? Does anyone? Sorry, I should say. Does, does anyone not have a Facebook? Account? Wow, that's pretty impressive. Okay, well you're the converted, but there are many, many converts to become converts over the course of the next sixty minutes or so. Roger, should we start with a sort of slightly hardball question? To those who think that you might have now had your cake and eaten it, as I asked you backstage, what's your answer? So,
2: I do not view myself as a particularly good messenger for the message I'm trying to put out. You can imagine that I, at one time, was very close to both Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. I helped to bring them together. My firm benefited enormously from its investment in Facebook, and by extension, I did too. When I realized in early 2016 that there was something fundamentally wrong with Facebook, I reached out to Mark and Cheryl, and I spent three months begging them to fix what I thought was a structural flaw in the business model and the algorithms, as well as the culture of Facebook. And I was convinced then that they were the victim. That these were the unintended consequences of well-intentioned strategies. When I set out to make people aware of what I knew, I was really conscious of the thing you're talking about. And I went initially in support of somebody who I thought was a much better communicator... A young man named Tristan Harris, who had been a design ethicist at Google, because I thought, what I really need to do is be his wingman, help him do his job better, because he, he was exactly the right communicator. But when we got to Washington, D.C., a weird thing happened. All the things I thought of as being a problem, all the things you're describing, the people in Washington, D.C. saw those as assets, Politicians and journalists respected the fact that I had seen something wrong and chose to abandon my professional relationships to essentially turn my back on a 34-year career and do what I felt was the right thing to do. And I was hoping I'd be done in a matter of months. All the, you know. Pretty soon we got Congress to hold hearings. We think, well, we're done. And they go, no, no, no. This is just the beginning. You're here for the duration. And I'm looking around going, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for that. And they said, actually, that's exactly what you signed up for. You may not have known it at the time. But this is the cost. If you really want to... If you want to solve this problem you need to stick with it and so I'm now four years into it I no longer do anything else and when I say I still play some music but I don't do anything in the investment world at all I have a new set of friends hardly anybody in Silicon Valley will talk to me anymore and that's okay that's okay my job is to help you understand what's going on in the world I spent my life in. And I'm not actually going to try to convince you of a point of view. I will share what my point of view is. My goal is instead to ask you to join me in a thought experiment. I'm going to give you a lot of data. I'm going to explain how these things work. And the thought experiment is for you to imagine what does it mean if I'm right How do you want things to turn out? What role can you play? What do we need our public servants to do? Because we're at a moment in time where there are a lot of problems in the world. And I would point to politics as one. But think about climate change or anti-vax or gun violence. Each of these problems has been made dramatically worse by internet platforms. And when I say internet platforms, I'm speaking about four companies. Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft. That the behaviors of these companies have taken our society and driven us apart for their gain. And I think that that's not good. The Silicon Valley I joined in 1982 was about using technology to empower people. The Silicon Valley of today is about using people to empower their profits and
1: I think that's wrong so let's spell out some of the major problems you discovered you had or were starting to have with Facebook in 2016 where you'd written an op-ed that was intended for publication but instead you sent it to Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg what were the big fault lines for you and to what extent as you go through them did they still exist so I wrote this op-ed because
2: in January of 2016, I saw things going on in the Democratic primary for the U.S. presidential election related to the Bernie Sanders campaign. And basically, friends of mine were sharing Internet memes, so photographs with text on them, depicting Hillary Clinton in deeply misogynistic ways. It would be some cross between hate speech and disinformation. And they were spreading virally, which suggested to me that somebody was spending money to lure my friends into the groups that were sharing the stuff. I'm going, who would do that? And then a couple months later, Facebook expelled a corporation that was using the advertising tools to gather data on people who expressed an interest in the Black Lives Matter civil rights movement. And they were selling it to police departments who were harassing the people. A clear violation of U.S. law. Now Facebook expelled the corporation from the platform. But the damage had been done. And then the clincher was Brexit. Because Brexit was when I finally realized, wow, the same advertising tools that have made Facebook the most successful advertising platform in history can be used in the context of an election to mislead, to distort public perception. And that was when I started to actively look for allies. And I couldn't find any. And then as the autumn began, there were more civil rights violations related to housing, people discriminating in the housing market, and we find out that the Russians are actively trying to interfere in the U.S. presidential election. And that's when my lovely wife Anne, who's here with us tonight, suggested to me I need to send this thing to Mark and Cheryl. I can't publish an op-ed. That is not the most effective way to help my friends solve this problem. So I sent it to Mark and Cheryl nine days before the U.S. presidential election. And here's what I said. I said there is something structural about the business model and algorithms of Facebook that in combination with the culture is allowing bad people to hurt innocent people. And again, I thought they were the victim. And I encouraged them to do what the pharmaceutical company Johnson & Johnson did in 1982 when a man put poison in bottles of Tylenol analgesic in pharmacies around (laughs) around the Chicago metropolitan area. He withdrew every bottle of Tylenol off every retail shelf without being asked. Did it the day the news broke. And didn't put it back until they invented tamper-proof packaging. Now, there was a short term cost, but Johnson & Johnson earned so much trust from that move. And I thought Facebook could imitate this. This is what Boeing should have done with the 737 MAX. But companies don't do that anymore. Companies don't actually worry about the people who use their products because, at least in the United States, we live in a world where almost every industry is now in the hands of a monopolist. And so they are not worried about customers or competitors. Anyway, I spent three months privately pleading with Facebook to do the right thing. And they weren't interested. They kept saying, Roger, we're a platform, not a media company. We're not responsible for what third parties do. And I say to them, hang on. We're talking about civil rights. We're talking about democracy. You're a trust business. People are entitled to conclude that if you're harming civil rights... Even if it's not you doing it, if you're just enabling the harming of civil rights, if you're enabling election interference, they're entitled to go, you guys are bad. I'm not going near there. And again, I'm just trying to help them. I'm trying to be their mentor. But they were having none of it. And that's when I hit this moment where, in theory, I was retired. I could have said this is somebody else's problem. But for whatever reason, that wasn't... The right path for me. Anna and I talked about it. And I became an activist without having the first idea what that meant. I had no idea. I mean, I'm certain that we did not know in February of 2017 that I would literally spend every minute of the next three and a half years doing this.
1: Explain to us two of the important phrases or words in the book that mean that we are capable, some of us, of being manipulated by a platform such as Facebook. So words that stood out for me reading the book. Lizard brain. Yeah. And then also filter bubbles. So here's the thing I would tell you. We are all capable
2: of being manipulated for a very simple reason. Who here is familiar with Darren Brown? Right? it's the UK everybody should be familiar with Darren Brown who, who, have you ever seen a great mag- magician right so the trick with great magicians is that they understand that there are elements of human psychology that are common to all of us no matter where we're from what language we speak what level of education we have these things are in the fundamental wiring of human beings and that we will react predictably and we can be fooled all of us it's not a matter of how well educated you are. You know. You can even sit there and pretend like you're not going to be fooled. And you're still fooled. Those exact same things are being used by internet platforms. So we were talking about this question of filter bubbles. A filter bubble is when you reinforce an idea to a person in a way that blocks out all ideas that conflict with it. When I was a child in the United States, we had three television networks and they maintained a filter bubble because everyone my age in the United States saw the Kennedy funeral, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and the moon landing. We all saw them together, but that filter bubble brought the country together because we had these shared experiences. So filter bubbles don't have to be bad. The complaint at the time was conformity, right? In the 60s, everybody hated conformity. Um, The difference with internet platforms is that they target us individually. So Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, what they do is they gather everything that is known about us. We think our deal with that is we give, particularly Facebook and Google, a little bit of data in exchange for a service we love. And then they target us with ads. If only that's what was going on. It's not. Here's what's really going on. We give them a little bit of data, they give us a great service, that part's correct. They then go out and they plant little tracking bits, in our browser and follow us everywhere we go on the internet. They know absolutely everything we do. They go to our bank, our credit cards, credit rating agencies. They get every single financial transaction, everything that's known about us. They go to healthcare data companies and get everything about our health. They go to our mobile companies and get our location, 24 by seven. They buy the data from every app, every affinity card, If they're Google or Microsoft, they have email systems and they have application services and they scan all those to learn things about you. If they're Amazon, they have Alexa. If they're Google, they have Google Assistant and they're listening and they're taking notes. With that, they construct a data voodoo doll. And sit there and think about it. In the United Kingdom, people pay for almost everything with a credit card. Imagine if somebody has 100% of that data and is trying to understand your life. They know so much about you. Now imagine that they sit there and this is what Google actually did and I want to credit Professor Shoshana Zuboff at Harvard, the author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism for this insight. What Google did was they looked at life events. Buying a car. Getting married. Getting pregnant. And Because everybody's on their system, they look at the data for everyone and they look for the common paths. There are not that many different paths before you buy a car, before you buy a home, or get married, or get pregnant. And what they're doing is, after they figure out all the possible paths, they then look for the next person who comes along and gets on the track. So you think what they're doing is just targeting you with ads, but that's not how it works. What they're really doing is making behavioral predictions. They look at you in comparison to everyone else. And go, wow, there's a 50% probability this person's about to buy a new home. There's an 80% probability they're going on vacation to a beach resort. There's a 90% probability that this woman is pregnant. And they sell that information. And you say to yourself, well, what's the problem with that? I go, well, most of the time there isn't any problem. But let's take the case of pregnancy. Google can forecast that a woman is pregnant With 90% confidence. Approximately 90% confidence. Before she knows. And they don't just sell that. To people who make diapers. They also sell it to anti-vax people. I think that's deeply creepy. Now if you say to yourself. They're in the business of selling behavioral predictions. Here's where it gets really creepy. If you're a marketer. That data voodoo doll represents perfect information about you. But what information do you have when you want to make a purchase decision? You go to Google. And what's Google doing? Their search results are not neutral. Their search results are informed by that same data voodoo doll that they're selling to the other guy. And so the things when you do a search for a new car, they know where you spend your money. They know where you live. They know what you do. So the things that you see will reflect that. They are narrowing the choices
1: available to you. So in other words, the source, as we see it, one of the sources of our greatest freedoms in modern life that has in some ways liberalized the world, and we can talk about the benefits later on, is actually constricting us and squashing us and molding us into into a a consumable, bite-sized chunk that can be targeted and manipulated. And so here's
2: the problem with this. That is precisely correct. And the thing is, it's not the technology. The problem here is not social media or search engines. It is a business model that is predicated on commanding our attention and then driving us towards predictable behavior. Professor Zuboff talks about the fact that Google's goal beginning in 2001... Was to convert all human experience into data. That's why they created Street View. Driving cars up and down the street. Taking pictures of your house. Then Satellite View. Take a picture of the house from the sky. Then Google Glass. Was human beings going around with these weird glasses. Filming absolutely everything. They'd come up to you. They would capture your face. They would do facial recognition. And then they could process it to determine your emotional state of mind. Now we kicked that one out. So what did they do? They went back at the lab and they repackaged it as a video game. And they're Google and they're pretty smart. So they knew that maybe people wouldn't like a video game from Google. So they called it something else. They called it Niantic and spun it out as a separate company. The game was called Pokemon Go. And the next thing you know, one billion people are going around with the camera on their phone recording absolutely everything they saw and did. Everybody they ran into. So if you saw somebody playing Pokemon Go, they captured your facial recognition without your permission. And here's the thing. The people who use Pokemon Go thought they were playing a video game. But Google says, nah, (laughs) we have a different goal. We're going to do a behavioral manipulation experiment. In the United States, since 9-11, the one thing you could count on is that people would not knock on a stranger's door. Right? We're afraid of strangers. (laughs) If you're playing Pokemon, Go And they put a Pokemon in a stranger's backyard, people are going to be lined up down the block to knock on the door. They could put a Pokemon over a fence and get you to climb over a fence. They put little gyms, as they called them, in their advertisers' stores. Starbucks, McDonald's. To see, could we get you to buy coffee or a cheeseburger? And the answer to all those questions was yes, they could get you to do that. And people are afraid of what the Chinese are doing, behavioral manipulation. There are only 800 million people in China with internet access. There were a billion people in the manipulation that was tested on Pokemon Go. A billion. And my point to you here is, maybe that's okay. But it's only okay if we know that's what's going on. And we have a chance ...to make a decision that's well informed. And so my goal here is not to tell you that it's bad... ...but to tell you that it's going on... ...and let you make your own choice.
1: Of course, you know the choice that you want us to make... ...and we've got to try to come to solutions later on. This comes back to Lizard Brain. This comes back Uh, to Lizard Brain. And we're going to come to Lizard Brain... ...because we haven't touched on it just yet and we will... ...but I just want to pause for a moment... ...and talk about the protagonists at the centre of this experiment... Because you have some insider knowledge yeah. of that world and you know or have known Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg quite well. Now, what you're describing here, I was smiling as I was listening to it, not because I wasn't terrified by it, but because it's kind of almost comically evil in its genius. The people who are pulling these strings, what do you think is motivating them? Yeah. Because these They're guys surely... No, well, that's the point, yeah. And that's what's kind of interesting as well. Because these people started out, didn't they... With a, a very positive vision. Actually, even idealists. They were idealists. Idealist. 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 So where do you think this went wrong? And, and why are they unable to, to, to stop themselves? I don't use the term wrong. Here's what it is. It's that there are two factors going on. But how can you
2: divorce the protagonist from the act? If the act as you just I'm described it. I'm not. I'm just, I want to lay it out as I perceive it. Okay? Because on their own terms, they're making the world a better place. The problem is that their own terms run contrary to the basic uh, philosophies of the Enlightenment. So Google, their goal of collecting all the world's information and Facebook's goal of connecting everybody on one network, those are in many ways virtuous goals. Where the thing breaks down is that Facebook in particular perceives that The goal of connecting the whole world on one network is so important it justifies any means necessary to get there. Such that when they first turned on Facebook Live, which is their live streaming service, and a man was murdered on it. The guy who ran that part of the company wrote a memo to the whole company saying, Our mission is so important that we have to accept the fact that people are going to get hurt. And recognize we have... Billions of people on the platform, so if a few people get killed, statistically that's not a big problem. And he goes, he punches it, finishes it at the end by going, eventually there's gonna be a terrorist act on here, and we're just gonna have to accept that too. And of course there was in Christchurch, New Zealand. 51 people were killed, which proportion of the population of New Zealand is exactly the same percentage as the people killed on 9 11 to the United States. Okay? So it's a huge deal. And in their mind, It's just a cost of their success. Now, in Google's case, Google believes that the world is really inefficient in a way that is bad economically and bad socially. They think that people are unduly stressed and that by converting all human experience into data, they can eliminate inefficiency. And in doing so, make the world a happier, more profitable place. And the flaw there is that two of the largest targets of inefficiency that exist in our economy are human choice and democracy. So if you watch what Google's doing, they've moved past Pokemon Go. And now they're on smart cities. And they have an effort going on in Toronto, in Canada, which is temporarily on hold, but the objective of it was to create a development inside Toronto that would be controlled completely by Google, where everything has sensors everywhere. They capture all the data, they own it, they control people's choices in that space. And the nature of their deal was there would be no opportunity for the public to push back. That Google would be protected from criticism, They would be protected from politics. The city functions that operate there, like the waterworks and transportation, would all report to Google. They would be replacing democracy with algorithms. And my point is, maybe we're all okay with that. But what was going on in Toronto was that people did not know. And so people like me went to the city government and said, hang on. Do you understand what's really going on here? Because if you don't, you need to stop and have a public airing of the issues. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive, sought after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code Welcome10 at Caskers.com.
0: Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of the Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists, and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre order now in hardback, ebook, and audio.
1: But let's just make, if you would allow me, a, a, a value judgment, if we can, about this, because I'm intrigued to know which side of the sense you ultimately fall down on. You could look at an aeroplane, you think it would invent aeroplanes, and some of them will fall out of the sky, and some people will die, right. but it's kind of worth it. If you invent an aeroplane, you know that there's a responsibility that comes with that. And then if you invent Facebook Live you know that there's a possibility or a probability that someone will be murdered on it or that there will be a terrorist attack. But you also know, just as with airplanes, that lots of people will use it in a a largely benign way and a way that might, in in many people's minds, improve the world. So how do we make that sort of value judgment? So I, I think that you've actually answered the question,
2: which is that Boeing and Airbus know that they have a responsibility to do everything in their power to protect people. And Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon deny all responsibility. Their view is that they should be entitled to do what they're doing without interference, without criticism. And in my opinion, that's the flaw. So I look at this and say, there are four categories of harm. There are harms to public health. So think of this as excessive dopamine for little children. This is body shaming on preteen girls. This is teenage bullying. This is filter bubbles causing people who are family members not to be able to communicate with each other that rolls over into the impact on democracy which is polarization and people who can't speak to each other it's also election interference and all of that that can be done on these platforms then there are the issues of privacy and i define privacy as the ability to make choices without fear humans need sanctuary they need places they can go where people are not spying on them and these companies have strategies of putting Alexa and things like it everywhere so there is no sanctuary if you want maximum efficiency you want people to behave predictably the whole point of sanctuary is to have a place where you don't have to behave predictably and then the fourth area is competition where they are now able to block alternative visions of so using the same technology in a different way from coming to market and when I look at those things, if these companies were accountable, and let's the, the metaphor I like to use here is a cross between two industries that we've decided did have accountability. One is the chemical industry. Between nineteen fifty and roughly nineteen eighty, the chemical industry was among the most profitable in the world, very fast growth. And the reason it was so profitable is they could pour their waste products wherever they wanted wherever it was convenient, without any cost. So they poured mercury into fresh water, polluting streams and drinking water. They would leave the tailings outside of mines, which would leach into the public water supply and would destroy forests and things like that. And that was true down their whole supply chain. Eventually society goes, you know what? You caused this problem. You need to clean it up. And I believe these companies are causing toxic digital spills. And they need to be held accountable. The second thing is the tobacco industry. Which addicted people for profit. Causing massive public health problems. This industry is addicting people for profit. And people say, well, hey, I'm not addicted. And I go, well, hang on. Let's do a test here. When do you check your phone? First thing in the morning. Is it before you pee? (laughs) Or while you're peeing? (laughs) Because for most of us, that's the range. Here's what goes on. So these guys are competing against Netflix, video games, newspapers, magazines, radio for your attention. They get it by appealing to your lizard brain, to portions you cannot avoid. We have in our wiring a need for rewards, a need for social validation. How do they do it? Notifications. You have 42 people who liked your post. Or, you've been tagged in a photograph. Or, please join my network on LinkedIn. The last one triggers the basic human need for social reciprocity. Wow, I've been tagged or I've been invited into somebody's network. I need to reciprocate. They use notifications to build habits. The habits become addictions. And the test for whether it's an addiction or not is, do you do things that are unhealthy? Almost all of us, at least once, have checked our phone while we were driving. I think we can agree that that's a very unhealthy thing to do. And yet almost everybody has done it at least once. To one degree or another, we're all addicted to smartphones. And Facebook and Google didn't create that. They merely exploited it. Okay? They didn't create filter bubbles. They merely made them worse. They didn't create political division. They merely aggravated it. But once they have you hooked they have to keep you on board and here's where it gets really creepy you know their ads are going by in the news feed they need you to spend a lot of time how do they get you to spend a lot of time they want to reinforce the things you like so the algorithms are tuned to if you spend time on a certain topic they give you more more and more and more of it but there are certain lowest common denominators and those happen to be lizard brain things like flight or fight, right? A roughly two-thirds of us can predictably respond to any signal of flight or fight. Anything that triggers outrage or fear, basically. And what does that? Hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. Now, these companies do not promote hate speech, disinformation, or conspiracy theories because they like that stuff. The algorithms don't even realize that's what it is. It's just that roughly two thirds of us react to that stuff. It's not because we like it. It's because sometimes it makes our blood boil, but we cannot help it. So the business model is driven by this stuff. The issue isn't about censoring them. It's about recognizing that the algorithms are constantly improved to amplify those signals more than any other. The ultimate proof point is on YouTube. There's a guy in the United States named Alex Jones. Are you guys familiar with Alex Jones? He's a conspiracy theorist. YouTube's recommendation engine in the last year that he was up and running recommended Alex Jones 15 billion times, which is greater than the sum of the entire reach of all of the largest media companies in America put together. That is a choice. We did not do that. They did that for their gain. And I would assert that that's unhealthy. And there is where I run into the thing of saying, I'm sorry, but these people are accountable. It is not our fault that we're addicted to this technology. It was designed to addict us. It is not our fault that we react to flight or fight situations. It's in our wiring. It is their fault for taking advantage of that. Because this technology could be used for good. You could do this in a way that empowered us. Instead, what do they do? They treat us as a source of fuel. They just want our data. They just want our dollars. And I'm sitting there going, you know what? You may be okay with that. In which case, I'll be okay with it. I just don't want the world to become dominated by four companies without having a good debate about it first.
1: That's all. This fight-or-flight lizard brain thing is very interesting because it exists in old media as well. So, on the radio, in talk radio shows, we know that if we are divisive, if we're provocative, people are more likely to engage, to call in and it becomes a livelier show and that's something that I have to be acutely aware of when I host my shows in order that I don't slip into that dark space and I'm sure I have at various times but what's so pernicious about these platforms is that they, in your view anyway they are all pervasive because we take our phones absolutely everywhere and we can be reached by them, manipulated by them provoked by them, angered by them moved to abuse to respond wherever we are at any point in our day I would say that the difference between old media and these guys
2: is the difference between broadcast and narrowcast that Facebook now has 2.4 billion monthly users each with their own Truman show right everything is tuned exactly to you which means you can have your own set of facts and here's the thing in the world of talk radio there are lots of alternatives. You can move the dial. You can do other things. You can watch other media, as you can here. The difference, I would argue, has two elements. One is that the reinforcement mechanism here is so personalized that, you know, in talk radio, you have to talk to an audience with one message. Here, the message can be unitary. can be just one person. And importantly, there is a level of trust that exists in technology platforms because they're relatively new, that is not true of old media. People know the limitations of radio. They know the limitations of television. They do not yet know the limitations of internet platforms. Most of us believe that Google's like an encyclopedia. We can trust it. That is complete and utter nonsense. Google is so full of nonsense, it is, you know. I mean, to a first approximation, the vast majority of the content consumed on YouTube that is not music is wrong. It's wrong. It, it, it can be wrong as in it's just badly made. Or it can be wrong as in the person is consciously trying to fool you. And there's a ton of that on, on Google. The search results are so easily gained. right? You still go in there and you look under a holocaust. And it's mostly denial stuff. And... We have too much trust. We are not yet sceptical enough.
1: And that's one of the biggest weapons, I think, that these big tech companies have, that we now basically assume this to be normal. The speed yeah. with which this stuff has infiltrated our lives and we have simply accepted it is extraordinary. So the Cambridge Analytica story on both sides of the pond resonated, of course, in Twitter bubbles and hit the headlines to an extent, that I bet you that... The vast majority of people didn't really care about it. And we just accept. And as a result of us accepting things, the legislators don't feel moved to regulate.
2: This is so true. And this is, this is, that is the cross I am bearing right now. And at the end of the day, the challenge of this is that convenience is a narcotic. If you are an advertiser... Google, Facebook, and Microsoft, and Amazon give you the closest thing to perfect information in the history of advertising, and they have amassed the entire audience you want to sell to. It has been transformational. But if you go onto an Amazon results page, what do you notice? If they have one, the top result is an Amazon Basics. It's an Amazon branded product. For branded products, half the stuff you see in there is inauthentic. It's counterfeit. Amazon is converting brand to two variables only, convenience and price. Now, if you are BMW, if you're Procter & Gamble, if you're American Express, that is the end of your business because your your brand values are completely different than that. These people are going to systematically destroy every sector of the market the same way they've already destroyed news. Because they're going to suck all the profit out of it. All these cars that are going to be smart cars with Alexa inside them and and Android operating systems made by Google, they're just going to be working for Google and Amazon. And so that trust is misplaced. And then for all of us, right? we're sitting there assuming that the search results we get are an honest broker. And they're not. And again, we may be okay with that. After we've had a chance to think about it. But I want to make sure we have a chance to think about it. Because with Cambridge Analytica. The core point of this. Was that a really low budget. Not super talented group of data scientists. Can have a profound effect on democracy. In more than one major country. Using these tools. Those tools are a lot better today than they were in 2016. It will be a lot easier in 2020. In the United States than it was in 2016. And everybody and their grandmothers can be doing it now. And the question is, is that what we want? And the problem is, for all of us, we kind of go, Oh, I love the convenience of having my whole life in Google. And I'm going, you aren't thinking about the costs in the way that they're really occurring. Because when Google knows everything about you, when they control all of your search results, they are controlling the choices in your life. They're taking away human agency. They're taking away your free will. And you may not be conscious of it. You're like a frog in water that's coming to a boil. And I've run the experiment. I gave up Google for Lent three years ago. And it was initially really hard but I turned it into a video game. I turned it into Frogger. You remember Frogger? You got to get across the river, you hop on the logs. The logs are the alternative products. And I just, in my book, I describe a stack of them. And the thing I would say to you is there's some really obvious, simple things for us to do. First thing, never use Android. Next time you get a phone, get an iPhone. I cannot overstate how profound the difference is. Apple's decided to brand privacy, it really matters. Apple's as bad as Android on addiction, okay? They got to fix that at some point. But at least they're dealing with privacy in a really, really, really thoughtful way. And the new operating system is so much better than Android, it's scary how much better it is. And interestingly, they're driving the unit price of the phones down so that the price gap has gotten smaller. So you pay less for that advantage than you did just a month ago. The other thing I would encourage you to do is don't use multiple products from the same platform. If you really love Google Docs, use a different search engine. If you really love Facebook, don't use Messenger. Don't turn your life over to these people. And watch how things look after a little while, okay? Because, you know, if you use DuckDuckGo, you actually do have an encyclopedia. Because they're not, you know, DuckDuckGo is a search engine. And now they got a browser, a mobile browser. It's great. It has tracking blockers built into it so people can't follow you around. It's very liberating. And it turns out it's the loss of convenience. It's not zero, but it's not as great as you think once you get over it. What I'm saying is if we want to have democracy, if we want our children not to be zombies, we need to accept a little bit of inconvenience in our lives. And the question I would ask you is if you knew that by changing your behavior just a little bit, you could protect your public health and that of your children, you could help to restore democracy, you could help to restore your ability to make choices without fear, and you could help to create an environment where there could be new alternatives that were better for you, what would you do? Would you do anything at all? And these are the questions we should be talking about. And for the politicians, you see, I think the best way to fix this thing is that in the United States, where we're so polarized now, most people can't talk to anybody who has a different point of view. This is the one issue that cuts across party lines, it cuts across philosophies. I'm just as welcome on Fox as I am on MSNBC, Fox Business and CNBC. Conservative Talk Radio, NPR. And the reason is really simple. There are only a million people in the United States who work at Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. And there are 330 million people in the country, which means there are 329 million people who are in the list of harmed parties. And we just need to get all those people together. We need to give the politicians a mandate. And what we want them to do is two things. First thing we want them to do is we want them to recognize that data about us should not be freely tradable. We can give our data to Uber in order to get a ride. But they cannot give that data to anyone else. They cannot use it for anything other than
1: giving us that ride. So we should have to opt in rather than opt out? Because it, we will be that, asked to tick boxes and most of right, us won't bother. But I want,
2: actually I want, I want to take away the, that whole decision process. I want to basically say no third party transactions in private data related to finance, health, location, or you know any one of a longer list. I want to extend the law that currently applies here and in the US that prohibits telephone companies and the postal service from reading your messages that go through their pipes. I want to extend that to the internet. I want to extend the US privacy law relative to healthcare data the internet I mean there's no reason why people are doing that stuff I mean it helps them it doesn't help you and so that's one thing and then I want to use antitrust law to create space for alternatives because the next big thing if we create a next big thing about empowering the people who use technology that is going to be a lot bigger market opportunity than the thing we got today and way more interesting and it it won't be based in Silicon Valley That's the thing that's really interesting. The tech world's different today. You can do it right here. In fact, you can do it anywhere. It'll be a global marketplace of cool ideas allowing entrepreneurship to happen. And so I want us to use our political voice. I want us, no matter what level we're talking about, they can be in city government, they can be in national government, they can be whatever you want. Just get in there and you tell them this matters. And the reason it matters is because we can't fix climate change. Until we can stop the climate change deniers from having a disproportionate voice thanks to social media. We can't fix anti-vax. Hell, anti-vax wouldn't exist without these platforms. But we can't fix it until we prevent it from happening on these platforms. Same thing with gun violence. The biggest problems in society are made worse by this business model.
1: Anonymity is the key word as well that you haven't actually touched on because if you look at the rise of the far right or you look at the rise of racism and the increasing acceptability of these nasty things that until fairly recently we thought were kind of becoming a thing of the past on these platforms people can act anonymously they can find other people that empower them who are also anonymous and eventually they shed the anonymity and they come out into the wider space. The normalization of extreme
2: behavior on these platforms is one of the most dangerous things out there. Because while, you know, taking white supremacy or or gun violence as examples, in any individual community, the true adherence to those philosophies are few in number. But when they can get together globally, then they have critical mass. And because of filter bubbles, they can block out all of their points of view. And all of a sudden, things that historically they were afraid to say in public, they're now comfortable saying in public because their perception is that everyone agrees with them.
1: And that also applies not just to people who start off feeling extreme, but people who start off with a fairly moderate position. Let's say voting for Brexit. Exactly. Through group polarization, which is a theory of Cass Sunstein, who I, I think you're familiar with, people start moderate or relatively moderate and by engaging only with their own sorts or only with people of a similar mind it becomes more and more extreme so suddenly for some brexiteers the only way out of europe is the hardest of brexit and this is how conspiracy theories work
2: is you wind up so if you're a new mother facebook will almost certainly recommend to you anti-vax conspiracy theory groups as something for you to join And once you're in there, you may be just anti-vax curious, but when you get bombarded with this stuff, it blocks out more and more stuff as you interact with it. And the next thing you know, you go from being curious to being committed to being extremist about it. And it turns out that people who've accepted one conspiracy theory are highly prone to accepting others. And these guys know that, so that once you're in a conspiracy theory group, they then recommend lots of others to you. And it turns out that if you were to log off of Facebook, the way they try to get you back is by giving you that highly inflammatory content. This is exactly the same thing that has happened to children because of texting. It used to be that people were really careful about breaking up a relationship when they had to do it face-to-face. But if you can break up a relationship over texting... You can be as vicious as you like. And that's what's happened. And I think this is, you know, they're still trying to establish the exact tie to the rise in teen suicide. But it seems logical
1: that there is a relationship and it should for certain should be investigated. Let me finish with a couple of quick questions to you from me and then we'll open it up to the floor. First, there are obviously positives still you bet. to all of this. Yes. And, I mean, an example is both a positive and a negative, but if, if the Paris attacks or the London Bridge attacks are happening, I will go more quickly to Twitter than I might go to the BBC news channel because I know that there will be, the truth will be in there somewhere more quickly on Twitter. I'll have to do some filtering. I'll have to accept that it might not be the truth, but somewhere in there... I'll get the facts that I want and they will then emerge and they will be editorialized and, and, and we'll, we'll be able to believe them fully later on. So Twitter is an extraordinary tool and a dangerous one for the same, the same reasons in the same space. An extraordinary tool in terms of quickness, isn't it?
2: Yes. And, and it is demonstrably true that political movements can use social media to organize events and bring people together. But here's the sad thing. The same mechanisms that allowed the Arab Spring to organize the beginnings of a democracy movement in the Middle East were co-opted by the powerful to suppress the Arab Spring. And it is just a sad fact of business that when your product is ubiquitous, when it's used by literally everyone, the economic imperative is to align yourself with power. Irrespective of your political beliefs, you're going only to align with the powerful, and so the result of this is that there was the Arab Spring that lasted for maybe a year. There's now been massive suppression of those kinds of voices in those countries, more or less ever since. You know, in Cambodia, it's very simple. The Facebook is essentially the only communications tool that's available to everyone, and it is used to suppress dissent in. Myanmar, it was used by the government to essentially enable an ethnic cleansing. In the Philippines, it's used to enable death squads that have killed 25,000 people. In Christchurch, that guy played social media platforms like a symphony orchestra. He used 4chan and 8chan, which are these anything-goes sites for the disaffected, To recruit a thousand people. Telling him ahead of time he was going to do a terrorist act. He then sends a manifesto to the Prime Minister of New Zealand. An hour before he goes out. He films his attacks on Facebook Live. So it's broadcast in real time. The thousand people clip. Copy the entire thing. And then circulate it everywhere. He used almost every social media platform on earth. And almost every internet platform on earth. In this orchestrated thing to amplify his terror. And there was a moment in time, politically, when the government of New Zealand could have shut down all of these platforms for a period of time to change their incentives, to give them a greater incentive to fix problems like this. They missed that window. And the problem we have is that because we lack the political will to shut them down, they believe that they are immune that there will not be any consequences for their failures. I think it's time to show them that you cannot ignore a subpoena from the Houses of Parliament. You cannot ignore a subpoena from the Canadian Parliament. You cannot ignore Myanmar's request that your terms of service be in the local language.
1: Right? These companies have a responsibility. So my final question is as someone who helped establish Facebook A. Do you feel any guilt in that? And B. Where is the ledger? Is the world a better place now or a worse place because of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and so forth? So I kind of think I've answered the first
2: question which is I've spent I've been full time since the end of 2016 doing nothing but this. It's been the most frustrating infuriating, exhausting experience of my entire life I can count the number of good moments on my pinky to the second question is I think they are all hugely net negative I don't even think it's close if you asked me two years ago I would have said they were still in that positive after Cambridge Analytica I began to look at the thing in a different way and there are new initiatives going on The smart cities project at Google. The Libra currency project at Facebook. So Facebook's strategy is to use a thing like, vaguely like Bitcoin, to create a universal currency in competition to the pound, the dollar, the yen. And the problem with that is that sovereign nations have only two foundational elements. The control of the use of legitimate force and currency. If you take one of those two things away, you've taken away sovereignty. Now they'll say to you, hey, we're gonna take all the people who do not have access to banking in India and China and or sorry, India and Africa and, and give them access to banking services. But you'll also give it to every one of the financial markets. And so the entire financial services world will would, I think, go into this black market environment to escape taxes, to escape currency controls. The incentives would be compelling. And I'm just sitting there going, well, shouldn't we have a vote about that? I mean, maybe sovereign governments are obsolete, but shouldn't that be our choice, not Facebook's? And I would say the same thing is true of Google with the smart cities. And so my point to you here is, we're not done with the stuff getting worse. And the thing is, it has nothing to do with whether you're on Facebook. Your life is affected, right? You didn't need to be on Facebook To be dead in Christchurch, you just need to be in the wrong mosque. You didn't need to be on Facebook to be dead in El Paso. You just need to be in the Walmart. Same thing in Myanmar. Same thing in the Philippines. And it doesn't have to be that way. It's not the technology that's a flaw. It's the culture. It's the business model. It's the algorithms. And all of those things could be made responsible. But right now they don't have an incentive. And that's, I want to invite you to join me. And here's the thing. You'd better join me. Because both Google and Facebook know you're here with me now. (laughs) And so as a consequence, you're part of the resistance whether you like it or not. And uh, I just hope that I can answer some questions and help you feel really good about it. But may I make one request? I'd like to start with one of the ladies in the audience because i've been doing this since the first of the year i've had a couple of hundred public events
1: and it's for me a tradition to have the women go first especially when there are two men on on stage yes so if you yes up here please we've got a microphone coming up to you right now
2: that was completely fascinating and completely depressing. When you say we need to talk to our politicians, our politicians make use of this. I tried to go off Facebook. It's very difficult. I agree. Suddenly I'm checking our Prime Minister, who doesn't see the public, but he does Facebook questions, and Facebook say to me, pleased you're back. So they... Ha- the politicians don't want to get rid of Facebook. And Facebook won't let me get rid of
1: them. So we are caught in a cleft stick.
2: Thank you. So this is, a, this is a wonderful question for bringing out a subtle but really important distinction. So my book is targeted at people on Facebook and Instagram. They are monopolies. If I want to reach people on Facebook and Instagram, I have to be there. So I'm not telling you to get off the platform. I'm asking you to go to the politicians and say... The issue here is not your ability to communicate over this. I'm not asking you to shut it down. I'm asking you to force them to be responsible with how they use data. A politician will have no trouble reaching their constituents, even if we prohibit third-party transactions in data. Even if we prohibit what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism as a business model. So the key distinction here, when you're dealing with politicians, you say, I do not want... Google and Microsoft scanning my documents, scanning my emails for their value. I do not want my bank and my credit card company and health people trading my most intimate personal data. I don't want my mobile company trading my location. And I for sure do not want Facebook, Google, and Microsoft to be tuning their algorithms to amplify the most destructive signals in the economy. I do not want to suppress any voices. I just don't want to amplify the bad ones disproportionately. I don't want to give angry people 100 votes for every vote the rest of us have. Is that helpful? Because it doesn't stop the politicians using it, knowing that they can peddle false news and reach a lot of people. I mean, our politicians
1: don't listen to to us. We've lost democracy.
2: But here's the thing that I would say on on politicians being the peddlers of false news. That's where we have to have high turnout and vote them out. Because not all politicians are like that. And and so party labels don't mean the same thing they used to mean. In the United States, things are really turned on their head, right? Because the Republican Party, which used to be about sensible economic policies, is now about white supremacy. They have essentially conceded everything else to the other party, which is only barely able to figure that out. In this part, I mean, what's going on here? I mean, you're kind of, every party's divided down a limit, right? Because you've got an issue that there's conflict on that's completely independent of whatever party you're in. And so I look at this and I go, this seems like a really good idea for the people to take control again. To not let the labels confuse you, right? And I don't know what to tell you about what to do here. But I know in the United States we have our own version of the same problem. And as I say to people, I'm not interested in you labeling me where I am on some spectrum. I am a capitalist. But I'm also pro-democracy. I'm pro-personal choice in all matters. I believe in the enlightenment. Google wants to take away democracy and free choice, not on purpose, but that's a natural consequence of their behavior. And I look at that and I go, I disagree with that. Now what political party does that put me in? It could put me in any political party. It doesn't matter. Those are really foundational elements of what America used to stand for that we have forgotten in the present day. And I would argue, I suspect something similar is going on here. And that means our voice matters way more than it does normally, right? That past associations don't mean the same thing that they used to mean. Let's use
1: that power. Just at the back, please, yep, you should shout out. Um, you gave some good advice before about using different platforms. Is there other things that we can do in the current environment to protect ourselves, make things yes. less bad? Like yes. every time you log into something, it says log in with Facebook or log yeah. in with your email. I Perfect. always choose log in with my email, but I don't know if that makes a difference or not.
2: So the answer is it makes a huge difference. So here, here, here is my basic decision tree for the first time in a long time it really matters what operating system you use particularly in mobile Apple's iOS has a new thing in the version that's coming out next week or the week after called sign in with Apple so the basic thing to understand is if you use log on with either Facebook connect or Google connect they are tracking you no matter where you go and they are using that to capture the state of your device at the time, your location, and all this other stuff. If you use sign in with Apple, they'll have a feature that fits there and uses a random email every time you check in so that you cannot be followed because you appear to be a completely different person to every website you go on to. That's really cool, okay? Apple's got a new credit card that's designed to minimize and in some cases eliminate data leakage in financial transactions, where effectively you're paying with cash. In the real world, I pay for, with cash up to about $400. Why? It's a game I play. Is it helping? Not much, but it makes me feel really good, okay? I'm minimizing my profile, right? So I'm a big believer in Apple, not because Apple is super virtuous, but because Tim Cook was in the closet until his mid-50s. So privacy for him is like this existential thing. As long as he's there, I'm really comfortable. Like if you, I use, I use Apple Maps to the exclusion of Google Maps. Why? Because Apple, when I'm done with my route, clips the departure point, the landing point. It breaks the route into 10 pieces and then randomizes the IDs. So Apple cannot reconstruct my routes. Now, there's some slight inconvenience you bear from that because it doesn't know, you know, you have to insert your root every time. But it's really worth it. I use things like DuckDuckGo. I use one password as a password manager. I never use any ancillary service I'm not consciously choosing, right? So when Google has all this stuff, I just don't use any of it. But I still use Facebook. I still have to use Instagram related to the book. I don't use any Instagram in my personal life, just related to the book. On Twitter, I don't actually engage in Twitter. I read Twitter a lot. But I don't engage in it. Why? I just don't need all the haters hating on me. Right? I mean, it just, this is so frustrating as it is. If I had the haters all over me, I mean, my wife will tell you, I'm way too sensitive for that. Okay? (laughs) And the thing is, it just feels good to do something, okay? And the thing I will tell you here is that political action is the most important thing you can do now. But protect your kids. If you have children, no exposure to screens up to age two is the pediatric standard. Minimal exposure to age 14. No smartphones until they're teenagers, okay? Really restrict their usage, in classrooms, try to get computers out of classrooms. In elementary school, primary school, it's really important to learn to concentrate by focusing on the teacher and to learn to socialize by being in a class setting with, with other students. If you have a display, the dopamine hit, dopamine's a neurotransmitter that's associated with flight or fight. Excessive dopamine hits in kids are, is causing the attention deficit problems which increases stress, makes it harder to sleep, harder to concentrate, and it increases all these problems downstream. And this stuff really matters. And we were told, oh no, you gotta expose your kids really young, because the world's all about tech. It turns out that that was actually bad advice. So we gotta undo that. Uh, Yes, hi, I I work with the Swedish privacy platform, and so I live and breathe this stuff, using Brave, Quant, DuckDuckGo, whatever. But what we don't talk about enough is beyond that, the business model itself. And you mentioned um, Shoshana Zuboff. um, And I've had a couple of conversations lately with uh, Doc and Joyce Searles about the intention economy. I know you know them well. So come to a question so we can help the whole audience So the question is, is something, a business model like the intention economy Ah, viable? Because we have to get out of the attention economy. So the the fundamental notion here about business model the problem with surveillance capitalism it is the most profitable business model ever created because they're not held accountable for the damage that's being done. I believe that if Facebook had to pay the cost of all of the damage it's done it would not be profitable. And Google would be profitable at a much, much lower level. So it's essential that we make them pay those costs. Because otherwise the bright shining light of that business model will just attract new people. So we have, to, we have to make it less attractive to do that. And then you can start to think about things like broadcast-based advertising. So in politics I think it should be legally required that this, everyone see the same ad. I think micro-targeting in politics is just inherently a bad thing. And I believe that if you're saying, I'm about to buy a car, I'd like to opt in for car ads, that's fine. I just don't want that data being sold to other people. And I think there's room for subscriptions. Once people understand that these things are not free, that it's essentially a barter of a service for your personal autonomy. Well, then you start to realize, well, wow, that cost is actually really, really high. But that education process is still ongoing. So I'm less worried about the implementation of the thing than I am about forcing uh, accountability for the cost of surveillance capitalism and then building awareness of what we can do together to regain control of our lives, to regain our personal autonomy, to restore public health, democracy, privacy, and competition.
1: Hi. Um, what if we took a different model? What if we said advertising was dead? What if we said they wouldn't sell our data? I wonder if everyone in this room would pay £10 to use Google, £10 to use Facebook, £10 to use Twitter. That would fix the problem.
2: It, w- it would have even But people wouldn't month. do
1: it because we are stupid and we prefer to use it for free and we don't... Now, we have a model called the BBC where we do it, and we're trying to break that model in this country already. So
2: this is a really important point. In the United, let me use the United States as the example because I'm not sure what you do here. But in the United States, we still subsidize the discovery of fossil fuels at a really high rate. We subsidize sugar, right? which is one of the most harmful things in the economy. I think there's a really strong case in the United States for subsidizing the development of new models of social media that don't adopt this business model. But we aren't yet at the point where we can all agree that the current model is harmful. As long as we continue to view the model as free, we're losing. It's not free. It just doesn't have an explicit cash price. But it is parasitic and it is It makes you a frog in a pot of water that's coming to a boil. And the thing is, Google's vision of cities, Facebook's vision of currency, are at the intersection of the matrix and minority report. And if you've watched those movies, you know that the right time to prevent the matrix or the minority report is before they're in place. It's the Death Star. you got to blow it up before they turn it on. Join me. It doesn't take much. You're going to meet politicians. Force them to do this. Help them recognize that we're not going to solve climate change. We're not going to solve gun violence. We're not going to solve any immigrant stuff until we hold these companies accountable for the costs that they've created.
1: Before you give a round of applause to Roger, I just want to say that there were so many questions that we didn't touch on. We didn't even mention Edward Snowden. We didn't talk about much the way in which states... ...might have access to the sort of information we give up voluntarily... Let me give one quick thing on
2: on that last point. After 9-11 in the United States... ...the intelligence agencies... ...provided a curtain of protection... ...around Google... ...to go into surveillance... ...using the fear post-9-11 as the excuse. Because the CIA and the NSA were prohibited... ...from doing surveillance on American citizens... So they let them do that. Watch Amazon's Ring doorbell, smart doorbell subsidiary. In the United States, they've cut these deals with police departments to get around warrants. So that Ring doorbell people are invited to share their videos with police departments for their protection. And Ring also provides a list of police departments of the people who said no. Where do you think that's going? So there is systematic bias in all of that stuff based on race and gender and it's going to get a lot worse we didn't talk about AI where we're importing all of the flaws of the real world into these black boxes you can't analyze and it's fixable but we just have to stop trusting tech and we have to make check go through the same hurdles that pharmaceutical companies go through that chemical companies go through you have to prove safety and efficacy before you can bring something to market that is not an unreasonable thing to ask This is our lives we're talking about here. This is our children's lives. This is our country.
1: And there is one obvious solution to the fact that we didn't tackle everything. And that is this book. Which I haven't even mentioned by name. But Zucked, Waking Up to the Facebook Catastrophe. I strongly recommend it. And I hope you'll get yourself a coffee and get it signed as well by Roger. In the meantime, please join me in thanking Roger very much indeed.
0: This week's podcast starred Roger McNammy and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. We have some amazing guests coming up before the end of the year, so please, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like pictures alongside your audio, you can find us on YouTube, or, even better, come and see us live in London almost every night of the week. Find out what's on at howtoacademy.com or on your favourite social media. Until next time, I'm Vas Thanks for listening.